We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Today, we cover the 19th novel in the Dark Tower <laughs> series. <laughs> Susanna, Susanna. You know, the way this one started out, I actually thought this was going to be called the Exposition of Susanna. <laughs> this was released not even a full year after Wolves, right? I don't think, you know, the King's Fault or anything, now I place blame on it. It just feels very strange and out of place to how he lets a book open up and evolve to the reader. Well, and that's a good point, is the idea of feeling strange. This book is so divisive even within the community like there's people that absolutely love this book maybe because of its strangeness and we're going to get into that today and then there's also people that can't stand this book that it's like their least favorite because it's always revolving around strange but i would say the strangeness wasn't the polarizing thing for me which i thought was weird i, I was actually i was going into this like okay, I think this is going to be my favorite book. Like, book Wolves of Kala got weird with it. Let's do it, Stephen King. Let's crank it up. Let's get creepy. Yeah, I think that the the meta-ness of this one just kind of went off the rails. Like, Blaine the Mono jumped off the track way too early. All right, June 2004, <laughs> this story is released, which, real quick, puts it well after his 1999 car accident, which, you know, is going to be obviously a key thing in this book. And it's also well after 9-11, which I, I feel like some people, when they're reading this book, they're going to get to a certain part and be like, wait, did this come before this? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely an important event to many writers, yeah. As realities break down, it's interesting the way Stephen King just smashes them together. And I think he does that the best in this book because, all right, feel me on on this one. Wolves of the Kala, okay, we're in there. And all of a sudden, we've got Doombots and Harry Potter and lightsabers, right? But it felt yep. like it felt like fic this is a fictional world, Colin Sturgis, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> and we're we're sprinkling other stuff Stephen King likes, other fictional elements into it, right? Now we already know that the real world is conceptually able to enter into the Dark Tower, right? We kind of saw that with New York and, and some of the real life references from the previous ones. But in this one, it's just like a collision of of realities breaking down where, yep, you know, I I, I gave you a hint with Salem's lot in Wolves of the Kala. We're fully entering into real world and fictional world divides no longer exist in the Dark Tower series. I feel like he read Ready Player One and was like, oh, people like when we smash all this stuff together. I like lightsabers and Harry Potter and Marvel comics. I'll put it in my books. Well, arguably, <laughs> Ready Player One read this book and is like, hey, I want to do that, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but I just it, it feels like just all this pop culture is just smashed in there because it's pop culture. Let's talk about that because let's both agree on this, right? 
the Dark Tower series, each book has been able to find a genre, a feel, where you can try to tell me that this is one cohesive story. It's, mm, mm, (laughs) I don't know about that. What I see is this is a generational story where Stephen King is growing as a writer, as a person, as a philosopher of how he wants to write. And you see how that evolves in this story. Like, maybe he wanted it to be one cohesive story, but his skills as a short story writer when he's writing Gunslinger are much different than when he's entering into this this world of Drawing of Three and the Wastelands as... You know, I, I think we made a compelling, in my opinion, compelling argument of how there's a lot of autofictional elements entering into that, right? And then we're entering into more and more fictionality with the wolves of the Kala. And then we have a lot of metafiction usages in this one, but we had a love story, we had the western, we had the shoot 'em up, we had like we had all of these genres, and we're kind of moving between different story arcs. Where I, I don't know if I could make the argument that they're totally different books. And I don't even think the books really separate the way traditional books do, right? Like, the Wastelands into the Wizard and Glass completely smashes that concept, right? Yeah, for sure. I think that, for me, when I look at all the books of the series, they are really compartmentalized. We see the Western, and we see the sci-fi one, we see the fantasy one. We see the backstory one, we see the pop culture, and then we have the conclusion. And yes, I think there's the overall arching of story where, yes, Roland is trying to get to the Dark Tower to save everything, and that's there, but it almost feels like because King has evolved his writing style, that has made a major influence of how he's writing these stories, obviously. But I also think that the world itself around King and his personal experiences in it and his personal life are obviously having a major effect here. We have, you know, the end of the Cold War. We have the invent of the, uh, uh, you know, the Internet. We have 9-11. We have his car crash. We have so many outside influences changing how he is writing this story, who Roland is sort of him, except when he, spoiler alert, literally himself, And I I think that there's so many different aspects of his life that have culminated in, you know, his magnus opus here that it's impossible to feel not only cohesive, but as a true one story because it has so many elements over, you know, the thousand years it took him to write this this series. Well, and if you ever look up kind of like some of the definitions of novel, a lot of authors have come to agree that there is a structure to a novel in terms of, you know, the level setting, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, characters having goals, having oppositions or, you know, antagonists set against them. And it's so interesting to me how this book, along with particularly the ending of book three into four, it's not cut in any shape or form in the sense of how a novel ought to be edited, right? It's much more, you know, like we have those references to Child Roland and the the Wastelands by T.S. Eliot. We have all these poetic references, and that's more poem purview that they can kind of like just use pieces and move them around. And it's kind of interesting to me how Stephen King is doing that with this with this very long story. I think if you did take it start to end, maybe how he kind of envisioned it, 
I do think that actually the story arcs are there. I think they make sense. How he's cut them into books, though, is very strange from our expectation as readers as to how a novel ought to be cut, though. And I wonder how much of that is his choice and how much is the publisher. Remember that he's writing this for somebody that's going to sell and make millions and millions of dollars. And we know by this point in time, 2004, that series are being sold to movie studios to make series and movies and whatnot. I wonder really truly how much that is. But my issue is not just that. It's that he builds this beautiful world, right? And he creates these very... um, And he creates these very deep characters. And I guess with this story from beginning to end, up to this point at least, the end of Song of Susanna, is that for this whole time, we see him creating or molding Eddie. And the very first time that things kind of go south, Eddie falls to pieces. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, he's hardened him and he's made him so. Eddie's like a a bubbling mess for most of this book. And that just is totally disheartening because he threw off that childhood life and like he should have some grit, right? <laughs> and to go save his wife and and his, you know, maybe possibly his child. And I guess just, uh, and I guess it's too- He's, he's not stepping a- into the fictional role that a hero is expected to in a traditional book, you're saying. Yeah. And then we have the kind of the role of Susanna, Detta, Odetta, Mia is- Again, I think that King just struggles sometimes to write the female characters like a lot of male authors do. This whole time, we hated Detta, and now I'm rooting for her? It makes me feel dirty. I don't know about you, but I'm like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to hate Detta. She's a terrible person. She's a terrible character. I'm spo- She's supposed to be a villain bad guy, and now I'm empathizing with her. That's odd. It's very odd. I guess that's why this book feels so out of place. Maybe, maybe most people expect certain—so if we're going to the novel discussion— there are certain beats that are expected for a redemption, right? And we don't really see that with Detta, but she's placed into this role where she's flipping her character. And Eddie isn't stepping up to the character that he was kind of positioned to be. Again, I don't think it's wrong. I, I, I don't have the negative adversity to it that you do. But you're right that all the expectations that we have traditionally from beats of a story of how characters ought to behave, they're not doing that. And I think that's kind of, in my opinion, wonderful. I do like how Stephen King is kind of having this meta conversation with novels and structure as a whole. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to make my characters behave the way you expect the traditional hero to step into things or how this character can't be redeemed. They can be redeemed without this traditional, you know, plot structure that I put aside. I think it's kind of interesting the way that King is playing with the roles that characters play in, in fiction. Fair enough. I guess that's a good way. I, he's subverting my expectations and maybe I should try to enjoy that more. But when I'm so invested and I've been reading a character for so long, I'm in book six and I have an expectation he doesn't meet it personally, I'm not going to be happy about that. And again, that is me. And that says nothing about the book or the author or the character of of Eddie Dean. Well, you're not alone. A lot of people feel that way. And it's, (laughs) I mean, this whole positioning of, of Odetta, Detta, you know, Susanna, it's kind of like, now we're entering into this Mia, like which, which isn't a different personality. It's another being, this demon, eternal being, or whatever it is, 
kind of being inserted into her, which makes sense, right? Because if anyone's going to have multiple personalities and get away with having <laughs> one more in there, it's going to be Susanna, right? <laughs> yeah, she's broken enough to be able to deal with it. And I guess that's too, I, I kind of like, you know, a little bit what he's done with her is, I guess, subverting expectations that Eddie was going to come in and be the hero and we get more of a heroine story, which is kind of neat that Susanna, Detta, Detta kind of work together and step up in this novel. And I like that. And, and we're going to see, you know, the rest of this kind of play out in book seven too. So I'm excited for you to finish it so we can have more conversations about uh you know her character because to that point i'm interested to find out like is odetta the one that does creating is detta the one that does destroying and we learn that you need to have both to have like a complete life uh it would be one way i might take that character yeah, I'm excited for us to get to the to the end because I think we can maybe talk about her a little bit more because I feel like that are these three personalities, the id, the ego, the super ego, and is he writing mm. these three different characteristics of, you know, the ideology of a person's identity from Freud. So yeah. I don't know. It, again, these characters are so complex. And I guess that's why I'm so passionate about it is, and like many people, they mean a lot to me because I feel like they've become part of my identity or my fantasy uh, you know, reading experience. I love these characters. So, well, I think it's interesting because this isn't a new experience for us. Like, I think some readers, when they see how Stephen King inserts himself into the story, this is the first time they've seen that concept, right? We just did Slaughterhouse Five, where they do that. Uh, we're currently reading Dead Souls from 1842, <laughs> where the narrator acknowledges that the author will kill him if he gives away this information, that that literally he's explaining things in chapters, right? Like, this isn't, this concept of this breakdown between reality and fiction isn't necessarily new to us. So I'll say, one, that's one thing knowing about us as we go into that, that the 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 shock of Stephen King being in the story, I'll speak for me, wasn't crazy and i was actually looking forward to it because like you know they kind of hint it uh, along the way here and then when you find it's kind of like a lead up to finally meeting him and i was like super excited to finally meet stephen king is that how you felt going into that moment too no 100 percent not uh so oh, self-insertion okay. is you know a big tool that authors use and if you you know if you google self-insertion and you look it up this has been done 30 or 40 times by very popular authors. It's done by comic artists and comic writers. It's been done by movies and TV series. And uh, I guess I'd seen this so many times before. And if this is the big Stephen King twist, because that's one thing his novels are always known for, is there's always kind of that big twist or the big aha surprise moment. And this was, I felt, it of the book. To me, it felt a little lackluster. Like, I've, I've seen this before. I've been there, done that. Uh, and I've seen it done better because I felt like he used it almost because it was popular or because it was a crutch for him to be able to say, oh, it's all happening because there's this guy writing this story in here. And you're like, wait, what? Um, okay, so, I just, so it uh, sounds to me like we are on different sides of the fence here. This is, this is actually kind of interesting, right? So, okay, I was excited for this because while it is a tool that's been done before, I, I give you that, right? But it is usually done with a specific flavor. So maybe let's talk about how the flavor might be different here. Because the way that, okay, so we talked about Vonnegut having just done that story, inserts himself, is he's meant to have this metafictional conversation where he's talking about that that glorification of, of a fictional story, Right. 
And it's the okay. same thing with Stephen King, where he's inserting himself into the story as well. But what's different is maybe the, the way I'm heading into this moment is I was just like so excited. I really was because I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is, these are my expectations. I'm like, Stephen King is the god of this world. Right, he is the father, and they even mention how Roland kind of looks like Stephen King, even though I totally wasn't picturing that when reading this. <laughs> yeah, I and didn't. they talk about how he kind of looks like him, and I'm like, well, okay, I, I get the play there that you know Stephen King's his fictional father, if you will. I know Stephen Duchesne is his actual father in the fictional world, but in the real world, which you know is breaking down with this fictional world, Stephen King birthed all of these characters, right? So I was really excited because I started to think before getting there, like, I'm like, okay, if Stephen King is the god of this world, kind of like he wrote another story similar, The Life of Chuck, right, where these characters all exist in someone's mind. He has complete control over everything. He is the one that, in theory, walking into this, was going to be responsible for their ka. He put their design in there of this is how they go about doing things. For why time slips, right? We have Stephen King not being consistent about when he's writing the story. We have real-life events, things that he forgets. Because remember, there's several parts where we kind of called out blips in the Matrix. I'm like, yeah. oh, this explains a lot of that. But, but I'll say this. So I was super excited going into it. When we actually met the Stephen King, I was... I guess that's my own expectations. But when Stephen King is just kind of like, well, I'm not actually the god, like... I'm kind of, like, these things just come to me. I write them. There's something else pushing me, trying to, you know, he writes in that coda that something's pulling him away from finishing the story. It felt uh, like it conflicted with so much of my experience of this series so far. But again, I haven't finished the series yet. But I'm, I, I had a hard time resolving my expectations, perhaps with the actual experience when we met Stephen King. But, but Stephen King has, I guess, where I was trying to go, was he has an influence on how these characters behave, right? Because he writes that note to to Jake and Callahan a, as they leave, like to be, you know, kind of like the Back to the Future plot to be, you know, grabbed years <laughs> later. Um, yeah, open he up has now. impact. Yeah. He has impact on the fictionality as opposed to in Slaughterhouse Five, the author was wrapped up in the fictionality. I guess. No, it, it, that's a good point. I just two things. I feel like that we just we've seen this so many times. Uh, uh, what is it the one with John Candy where he's the writer and everything he writes on his special typewriter comes true and uh, it just I don't know it, it feels more comedic than it should be serious and this whole series has been so serious and such heavy undertones of seriousness about uh, such heavy undertones of seriousness serious mm, and such heavy undertones of seriousness um, you know with identities and you know religion and ka and the meaning of life and family and love and everything so that brings me to my second point of i feel like this was just a cheap scapegoat like at the end of the story the very first time that the person uses the it was a dream you're like oh that's so cool that's so crazy but after mm -hmm. you've seen it 15 times it feels cheap that you're like oh it was all a dream it was in their head Oh, awesome. It just, I feel like the carpet was being pulled underneath me. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen that in so many other places that it just didn't feel good. It didn't feel satisfying. 
So maybe in the same way that Stephen King like inserts himself in the fictionality, I'm going to take the audience that's watching it right now and insert it into this conversation in a meta way. Let us know down <laughs> below. Like I'm obviously on the side of like I thought the idea was cool. Maybe the execution didn't totally throw you know follow through for me. And then obviously crypto's against that. Let us know in the comments down below where you guys fall on this debate because it sounds like this is a divisive feature of this book. Now let's also talk about the origin story here. Okay, so if we're going to talk about maybe how Stephen King is not totally the god, has inserted himself into the story, we do have the origin about the prim and the receding and about how there used to be mysticism, and that's replaced by skepticism when we have technology and stuff like that, and the technology breaks down. And that flows through, I feel like, the whole gestalt of this piece, right? Because we had Shardik, you know, and the world was breaking down with him. And obviously he was some type of a guardian. And, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of, I'm getting the sense that I'm not going to meet the other guardians and I, <laughs> I'm not going to really see the other Palantirs. Like the story seems to kind of wrap up some stuff. I was kind of excited to see like, you know, the broader picture, but we're just like accelerating faster and faster down this beam in the destruction of the world. But we do get the creation of the prim and the recession from it. And I do feel like that's kind of consistent with the story about the world breaking down and losing mysticism and growing into technology that goes into i mean we've talked about this in drawing of three and wastelands and wizard and glass about how the churches are breaking it down about how you know stephen king's obviously more afraid i guess of religion at a younger age but he's almost kind of revealing to us the design of this all along with this creation story that i thought was kind of consistent with the rest of of these books so far yeah i guess for me in this story i think about it as like and let's use the Wizard of Oz reference from kind of the whole series, right? That he's having everything bleed together. In the Wizard of Oz, when you pull back the curtain and you just see it, some bumbling dude, it loses its luster and allure. When I don't know the magic trick, I get that giddy, childlike feeling. But when I know how the magic trick's done, it's cool, but I want to go back to not knowing how it's done. And I guess with this story, I feel like he gave me metachlorians. And I didn't want that. I liked the mystery. And I actually enjoyed that I didn't get to meet the other Guardians up to this point in time. I like that I didn't get to know some of the things of the story. Because it left that air of mystery about Roland's world. And when we start putting so much of the story in our real world, I feel like we lose that essence of innocence of childhood-like wonder. Okay. So I guess, and I don't want to say you speak for the entire audience of the people that, that dislike the fact that King, so much of that King fictionality breakage is ruining what sounds to me like your your expectations or imagination of what the rest of this world could look like. By having a real world influence, it's taking away from the imaginative elements of this world. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, when I read these books... I want to go to a fantasy world. I want to be more in Roland's world. And I want to be with the gunslinger and the guy that has guns and magic and doom bots and all that. I want to be in his world. I don't want to be in 1999 New York. Uh, I've never been to New York City. I would love to go. Um, but I don't want to be there. I want to be in this other world where I can go to places with magic and demons and, you know, People can learn to shoot faster than the eye can see. I just, I feel like it detracts from 
what he set out in the beginning of creating this fantasy world and roots it too much in reality. And it breaks the suspense of, you know, fantasy for me. There are other worlds out there, Gunslinger, right? Yeah, and I want to be in those worlds. Why do I want to stay here? We have COVID. <laughs> well, I mean, you could go to the Superflu world. I'm sure that would work out well for you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe I'd be immune. <laughs> you know, okay, so here's... So in terms of that breaking down and thing, one thing that I felt was we have those quotes like, all things serve the bean, right? What does that quote mean when we compare to... Now, I, I don't know what word to use because I'm going to use the word side quest, which I think is too... I think it has too much of a pejorative force behind it because because I enjoyed Wolves of Kala greatly, right? But the fact is they're not serving the bean, right? Like, like the whole point of that was like, okay, so so we got Black 13, right? That that Palantir, the fact that, you know, Sauron, a.k.a. the, the Crimson King, can see through this and see through everything. Uh, I enjoyed that piece, but I'm like, okay, what, what's he going to do with it, right? Because that's the only thing that really happened besides Susanna left with the pregnant baby. And unfortunately, with her just kind of having the baby at the end of the story, with them burying the Palantir, Black 13, underneath the, the 9-11 thing, which, again, I'm not really sure why that was put there in that story. It, it was hard for me to understand what the purpose of that was. That buries that, that, that side quest so well that I'm like, huh. Unless Callahan is, like, super interesting or relevant in the last book, I... I feel like I'm like, not all things serve the beam in these two stories. And side quests are supposed to be the most favorite, right? This is where you get all the extra gear and loot to get ready for the final battle. That's <laughs> and true. I think we've kind of done that, right? We got the plates and, you know, our party is broken and we got to come together stronger and better. So I think that it serves a purpose for the overall arc of the story. But it does feel like, huh, you, you kind of question it a little bit of that is this offshoot story going to serve any purpose for the greater good? And I think that you might see some of that in book seven. No spoilers. So what do we think about Stephen King's coda at the end? He's basically applying criticism to himself. And I don't know if you can really do that. You have the whole author is dead argument. You have, you know, authorial intent. And here is authorial intent literally inserting itself into the story but not as a legitimate piece of, of nonfiction. This is still fictionalized to fit into the story in terms of how he felt, maybe a little bit about, I mean, the dates, I don't think they're that specific, but more specifically how I think all things serve the beam. He talks a little bit about all of these stories with like this filter of almost self-serving how he was late to write some of the story how he made certain choices like it felt to me like i don't want to say excuses but it was very self-serving to offer critique of yourself and your story and inject it into a fictional delivery i thought that was rather interesting that was actually probably my favorite part of this book Definitely my favorite part of the book, and I, I want to refer back to actually to Wizards in Glass, and in the afterwards, he wrote in there, I have written enough novels and short stories to fill a solar system of the imagination, but Roland's story is my Jupiter, a planet that dwarfs all others, a place of strange atmosphere, crazy landscape, and a savage gravitational pull. Dwarfs the others, did I say? I think there's more to it than that, actually. I'm coming to understand that Roland's world, or worlds, actually contain all the other of my making. And I think that includes our world, too. I think that 
it includes what he has experienced in this this life. And I think that in you can look up online that he takes what really happened to him sitting in his office with his employees as he's crushing these last three books and trying to get them out there for the fans because he's receiving letters. He's receiving death threats. He's receiving, you know, people begging him saying, I'm 80 years old. You're my favorite author. Will you please finish this series for me before I die? Mm -hmm. It's my dying wish. Yeah. And I think that have a heavy impact on him in conjunction with what has happened with him almost dying in 1999, that he doesn't want to leave his greatest works unfinished for his fans. And you can go online and look up, and they have um, they, they put it like in a two-column notes, and they show what's in the coda, uh, the coda and what actually was in real life and how mm. much it influenced. And uh, it's pretty incredible that a lot of it's really close to fact and very little fiction. I mean, a few right. things are changed, I think, for namesake. But other than that, wow, how much he felt pressure for this. Oh, absolutely. But that's the problem, too, is that it's not 100% fact. And it's not 100% trustworthy either, which is what I think is interesting, too. He can bend the self-serving aspect of this just a little bit. And it kind of will, I think, play a little bit of a bigger role than in the purview of true nonfiction writing of what was all happening in the greater gestalt of things. We're just getting the small little sliver to almost serve what he wants at that point in time, which is rather interesting, but I, I don't think I can rely on it. I mean, I, mean, I think it's like 95% true, right? But I think there's that tint on it, right? Which, which doesn't quite work, and it can't quite be considered nonfiction elements. And it is part of a fictional part of the story, in a sense. Oh, for sure. And... Again, and be careful going on those websites because they do talk a little bit about Book 7 as well. And in the end of Book 7, he has another little chunk of information uh, like he does at the end of all of his books where he gives some personal insight and tidbits. And I think he kind of nails it a little bit there as well. And we can talk about this more. So I'd like to come back to that and address this issue of the, you know, the self-insertion and the coda and, and what it means to the overall Dark Tower series, because it is very impactful and it's something that is very unique. And I think maybe why we both enjoyed it so much on this book. So here's an important question. Okay. So we are, we're on different sides of the fence, but I don't know if we disagree because I, I would put the Song of Susanna on, on the weaker element of, of this series that I've experienced so far. Again, I don't have the full picture because I've never read the last one, right? And I know that sometimes even on rereads, you'll pull out things that you didn't see on your first read that, that may, you know, elevate where this book sits. But for me, I'm putting this one lower on, on the Dark Tower list of like what were my favorites. This has definitely been on the lower side in terms of how I've enjoyed this story. Now, that raises the next question is, one, is how much did you enjoy it? But also, as we talk about side quests, I feel like we might have been a little bit, I might have been a little bit remiss about how we put this, because while a lot of this is side and could have been wrapped up or changed differently, I don't know if I would say that this book could be omitted. Like, I still think there are things that are required from a story perspective, even though his novels break up the story very differently than how we expect. We've kind of had this discussion numerous times, I feel like, of can you skip the gunslinger? Can you now skip Song of Susanna? If you want to have the full experience, I think that there are nuggets throughout every single book that you're going to love, and there are things that you're not going to enjoy. Uh, I don't think you should skip this book. 
I think that we just we're trying to give you our perspective. And my warning is is that you might not enjoy this as as much as some of the other books. For me, this is my least favorite in the series. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just all the other books are fun. And this whoa, one whoa, to me. Whoa, 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 whoa. At no point did we say you could skip Gunslinger. We said don't start with Gunslinger potentially. If you're a person that's gonna <laughs> if you're gonna eject out of a series real quick, I wholeheartedly support starting with book two and then going back perhaps to Gunslinger. But if you're a person that can commit and can understand that the writing of Gunslinger is nowhere representative of the series as a whole, then sure, start with Gunslinger, right? And I think you should start with Gunslinger. But if you're those person that's like, I want to sample the series and I'm, I'm quick to eject, okay. Start with Drawing a Three, but I never said skip Gunslinger. It just I, We just said start with Drawing a Three. Yeah, I don't think you should skip any book in the series. I just I think that Song yeah. of Susanna is going to be the weakest entry to the series for me, and it's the least fun. And that's when I go to these fantasy worlds, I want to have fun. And all the other books are funny and adventurous and have so much heart and so much, you know, growing of the characters. It's just I enjoyed them overall more. Well, it's almost like... It- if we accept that these books aren't cut in the traditional places of where novels are expected to be cut, right? Yeah. It's just so abrupt how some things happen, but there's also downs parts and stuff like that. We're not, we don't get that crazy action shootout part until halfway through this book. Like half the book is this exposition of Susanna. <laughs> yep. And I think the problem is that these books were just cut strangely. I would almost kind of like shove part of this book into maybe wolves and shove wolves, part yep. of this book yes. into maybe the last the one. And, and I think from a reader yeah. perspective that may connect better or, or just reorganize it maybe a little bit, I think would help it a little bit. But, but while I say side quests, and again, I think that is too negative for what, how it, it traditionally is portrayed. I don't think this is omissionable information. I think it's, information that probably could have been reorganized into the other books in my opinion because it's only like 450 yeah. pages or something like there's not much yeah i think we need to rehab this conversation after you've read the seventh book because right. Right. we could reorganize a couple of things and make some different splits and it would be much better for your average reader even even maybe your hardcore sci-fi fantasy nerd reader well all right let us let us wait no further. Let us continue <laughs> on our path of the beam and get to the final book, which interestingly enough, apparently my There's library no beams left. <laughs> it's interesting enough. My library thought that I should start with this one. I was there the other day and they have this fantasy and like they're just showing like, you know, all these fantasy books and they'll show the first book of all of these series. But for Dark Tower, they put book seven up there. And I'm like, what are you doing, library? <laughs> Whoa, somebody's drunk. Yeah, <laughs> Day right? drinking Come at the on. library. Sounds it like my kind of guy. It even says book seven right there on the cover. What are you doing? <laughs> well, see, that's what maybe Stephen King knew. That's see, he knew he knew the library was going to put the wrong book up, and so that's why he had to have all of this explanation in the beginning of all of his stories. He oh, knew so that way we could start here. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, all right, guys, if you want to check out our talks on the rest of the beam, make sure you hit that playlist down below so you can follow along or start from the beginning of the very beginning days of our YouTube channel, even. So we'll continue on the path of the beam. We look forward to checking you guys out there as we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.